Turn with me now in the book of 1 Kings to chapter 13, where we'll read the second half of that, beginning with verse 11 through to the end of the chapter. And it's, we're reading through 34 and not 25. So 1 Kings 13, verse 11. Now an old prophet dwelt in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. They also told their father the words which he had spoken to the king. And their father said to them, Which way did he go? For his sons had seen which way the man of God went who came from Judah. Then he said to his sons, Saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he rode on it and went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. Then he said to him, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, Come home with me and eat bread. But he said, I cannot return with you, nor go with you, go in with you, neither can I eat bread or nor drink water with you in this place. For I have been told by the word of the Lord, You shall not eat bread nor drink water there, nor return by going the way you came. He said to him, I too am a prophet, as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you to your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. He was lying to him. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. Now it happened, as they sat at the table, that the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he cried out to the man of God who came from Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord, and have not kept the commandments, commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but you can but you came back, ate bread and drank water in the place which the Lord said to you, Eat no bread and drink no, no water, your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. So it was, after he had eaten bread and after he had drank, drank, drunk, that he saddled the donkey for him, the prophet whom he had brought back. Then he was gone. When he was gone, a lion met him on the road and killed him, and his corpse was thrown on the road. And the donkey stood by it, and the lion stood by the corpse. And there men passed by and saw the corpse thrown on the road, and of the lion standing by the corpse. Then they went and told it in the city where the old prophet dwelt. Now when the prophet who had brought him back from the way uh, from the way heard it, he said, It is the man of God who was disobedient to the word of the Lord. Therefore the Lord has delivered him to the lion, which has which had torn him and killed him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to him. And he spoke to his son, saying, Saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled it. Then he went and found his corpse thrown on the road, and the donkey and the lion standing by the corpse. The lion had not eaten the corpse, nor torn it, or not, uh, nor torn um, the donkey. And the prophet took up the corpse of the man of God, laid it on the donkey, and brought it back. So the old prophet came to the city to mourn to bury him. Then he laid the corpse in his own tomb, and they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother, so it was. 
after he had buried him. And he spoke to, to his sons, saying, When I am dead, then bury me in the tomb where the man of God is buried, and lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying which he cried out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against the, all the shrines of the high places which are in the, the cities of Samaria will surely come to pass. After this event, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil ways, but again he made priests from every class of people for the high places, whoever wished. He consecrated him, and he became one of the priests of the high places. And that this thing was the sin of the house of Jeroboam, so it was to exterminate and to destroy it from the face of the earth. May the Lord bless this reading to our good understanding. Now we've been focusing on the word of God lately as it comes through in this passage of scripture. And though this is somewhat of a confusing passage, because you see the older prophet being the one who was more grievous in his sin, uh, yet he comes to repentance by the end of this thing, although he does not cry out regarding his own role in this like he should have, like he could have. But we see the older prophet recognizing that God used him as, a, as an instrument for his own revelation, because at the end, the, the most important the most important message that comes through this tale is that the word of God will stand, that the word of God will not be uh, uh, coalesced or maneuvered or uh, minimized in any way, shape, or form. That even if we as priests of God or prophets of God hold that word in an unholy way, in an unhealthy way, that God will use his word powerfully as he will. Some people come to this text and they accuse God of error, God of unkindness. But we see here that as that, as that donkey stayed beside the body and the lion stayed beside the body, everyone who passed by that place received the witness that God's word would stand. And we all need to realize that today in our own lives. Where are we challenged? Where do we, where are we tempted to deviate? The word of God is sure. We sang in Psalm 119 about the power of the word, that the word comes and the word goes in the minds of men. But the word of God has a standing and will not be passed away. In the same way that the, the lion misbehaved according to his nature and the donkey, the donkey didn't run away, but he stayed there. You see, God's power is manifest upon the mosquitoes of this world, upon the donkeys, upon the lions, and upon people like these two prophets of God. And God will use us, sometimes God will use our mistakes, even our sins, our confusions. He will use them for his own sake. We cannot outthink the living God. And so that's the story that we have before us on, on this day. Now, as we begin, we see that we're, we're thinking about last week's scripture. We saw where the young prophet came and witnessed against Jeroboam. We, we learned about how Jeroboam had cried out, had held his hand up as he saw the prophet, the young prophet prophesying against Jeroboam and against the altar of Bethel, this pagan altar that they'd constructed. As he held his hand out and he said, arrest him, arrest him. His arm 
was withered and it became like a, a piece of stone. He could not draw it back to himself. And this pagan king Jeroboam was so overwrought that he cried out to the prophet whom he had just called to be arrested. Now he called out and asked for healing and for mercy. Heal me, he said. The prophet prayed for healing and Jeroboam's arm was healed. Was it healed for good? Of course not. Because Jeroboam kept going, kept going in the way that he would go. God often answers our prayers in strange ways. He often blesses in the sense of an earthly blessing or an apparent earthly blessing. He'll bless the pagans of the land. Right now, we see that all over the world. We see it in China. We see it in Washington, D.C. Where the pagans of the world seem to be animated with strength. Where the church is persecuted. But we know from this story that that's not the end of the story, that God uses false prophets, false kings, false priests. He uses them for himself. I love the way the modern church is so in love with temporal blessings, temporal numbers, that they gauge everything by that, not understanding that God is much higher than their numbers. God is much more, uh, uh, much deeper in his thought and in his governances than the simple numbers that amaze us and, and uh, bewilder us as human beings, draw us to themselves. And so in this story, we see just all kinds of, of uh, turnarounds of things that, uh, that we think should come to pass that don't. And so uh, this, um, this uh, younger prophet we saw last week where he turned down the king's overtures because it was obvious that the king was not a man of insight. The king wanted him to come back and eat with him. But now he's seduced this week, this week by um, a true prophet who made a false prophecy. And that is so bewildering to us and our senses that it just shows us that God can use us. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. If we have had, if we have had a wonderful testimony in our lives, but then we deviate from the word of God and take some other pathway where our minds are bewitched by some other thoughts that are not really godly, that are not really come from him. You know, the, the, the older prophet said to the younger prophet, an angel has spoken to me when, when the younger prophet would not come back with him. He said, an angel spoke to me. He knew he was lying. He was a lying prophet at that time. Can, can, can true prophets be lying prophets? Well, we see in this man's life he was a true prophet earlier in his life. He was a true prophet at the end of his life, but he dallied, much like King Solomon. He dallied for a season in the midst of his life with being bewitched by false things. How often has the church of God taken this route? Been bewitched by less, lesser things than had won them to the kingdom earlier in their lives. And so this is what happened. Now when the when the uh, Younger prophet is seduced by this uh, this statement. He comes back. He, he eats with them and that sort of thing. Now, in the in the in a kind of a, the most cruel fashion, um, we see the 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 older prophet's infidelity uh, come out in um, in uh, verse eighteen, where he says, "I too am a prophet as you are." And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, "Bring him back with you." Oh, I'm sorry. That's the that's the uh, the preliminary verse um, uh, he says in verse 20 thus says the Lord because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord 
and have not kept the commandment which the Lord God commanded, but you came back and ate bread and drank water in the place which the Lord said to you, Eat no bread and drink no cup. Your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. This is such a a kind of a a judo-like maneuver where we see the, the older prophet who has been dishonest now has a word of honesty for the younger prophet who was honest but who turned back from this earlier prophecy and uh, the younger prophet now is cursed by God. This is a, a tremendous challenge to us to rightly determine the word of God to us. To rightly determine what the Bible says. So that it doesn't matter to us if, uh, if uh, we're, we're building a church and we find the, a, fine, a fine bishop of a more powerful church who comes in with greater worldly knowledge than we have, persuades us that what we're doing is wrong when we have gotten that from the word of God itself. It doesn't mean that we immediately turn and follow the new word that we have received, but we need to put all things to the test. We need to evaluate what we're hearing and what we're seeing. We need to have a humility before the Lord. Uh, one of the in the Sunday school lesson or the church history lesson that we're, we have this morning, we're studying Puritanism and uh, we're studying the, the revival of Puritanism uh, under such men as uh, Spurgeon, Lloyd-Jones. And uh, these men stood in so many ways almost alone in their day when the rest of the world thought that it had developed a a new and more viral, virile form of Protestantism. And so they seemed like so many antiquated men, so many men that were uh, caught in a time warp that were outdated. But we're going to study, we're going to hear about, we're going to think about how these men were not antiquated, they weren't antiques. They were like prophets of God who had been uh, out outshouted by the false prophets all around them that held the ears of Protestantism in their day. And so it was in this day. So the, um, the older prophet is brought to his senses uh, by the Lord and began to speak to the younger prophet and, and pronounced a, a curse upon the uh, younger prophet. When we opened up the, ver- the passage here, I, 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 when, I, when it said, Now an old prophet dwelt in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all, that the, uh, the man of God had done with Jeroboam <clears throat> there at Bethel, I thought to myself, I wonder what this old prophet was doing. He was an old prophet at one time. He had prophesied the word of God, but what was he doing now? Jeroboam in that area of the northern ten tribes had fallen away, and they were, um, they were decomposing very quickly. And God would bring assailants upon them very quickly. What was this prophet doing? Was he still uh, haranguing his neighbors and these ten tribes as he did in his youth? And I cannot believe that he did. I believe that part of his seduction had to do with uh, the the fact that he had become weaker and he'd been uh, denatured. It's like he'd been uh, diluted with water so that the original strong commitment to the Lord and to the kingdom was now dissuaded. And so that he heard this young prophet 
had problems with that? Was it envy that, that drew him to be fascinated with this young prophet? Was it a desire to be rekindled himself? We know not. The Bible doesn't tell us. But what we do know is that he was fascinated with the younger prophet, and then when he went to see the young prophet, he entertained this thought that, that we know came from the pit of hell. It did not come from any angel of God, as he might have said. He simply lied to the young prophet that an angel had spoken to him and told him to bring the young prophet back with him. And so this older prophet, is a, it's a story of inglory and a, a decomposition of what was there before. And this is a warning to all of us. This can happen to us. Uh, God is not entertained by our blessed natures, by how we are so gifted as people that he comes and he adorns us with more. No, God calls us to be humbled before his face and to recognize that he is God and to bring our lives into conformity with him and to really fear him. The fear of the Lord is not in favor in these days. That's something that I know has been preached in this church, whether by Stephen or by myself. Uh, we both have a healthy fear of the Lord. And uh, that's a good thing. That flavor has been lost in so many of our American churches. And so <clears throat> we see the, the old prophet abiding in a wicked culture. We see the old prophet's infidelity in verse 18. Uh, we see uh, the the, uh, the, the old prophet uh, confusing the younger one with the word of God, or the so-called the pro profession of the word of God. And ultimately in the story, we see the old prophet's repentance and Jeroboam's ruin. Um, the Lord comes to the older prophet again and, and uh, informs him about the future of this young prophet. And he says as soon as he ends his meal and goes, up, goes on his trip, he will be cursed. So the younger prophet leaves this house. He goes off. He heads back to Judah from whence he's come. Uh, this is a, a, just an incidental lesson that God's truth comes out of his people, out of his places. At this time, the ten tribes are wandering. Judah, despite its uh, iniquities, uh, God was still using Judah as the main orifice, I mean the main oracle for his revelation. And so as the young prophet heads back to his land of origin, back to Judah, and this lion comes out and kills him. The lion doesn't, you know, the lion doesn't eat him. He just uh, uh, kills him very swiftly. You, you, can, you can go on the internet and watch lions fighting in Africa, lions attacking, and you realize how weak we would be in the face of a lion. A lion could jump on us with one swipe of his paw, could break our necks, with one bite of his jaw. He could crush our skulls, and we would be no more. And so that's what happens to the man of God here, this younger man of God. He is uh, he's destroyed, but not eaten. And so then God makes, it's kind of a miraculous sign, because the lion does not behave according to lions, and the donkey doesn't behave according to donkeys. The man of God is killed, but they, they sit there like sentinels on the road, testifying to the world that there has been a... a conflict regarding the word of God and that there has been a major error in terms of the word of God but the word of God stood in terms of what 
the prophet had said would happen to the younger prophet, and what even the younger prophet had said about himself when he refused to go back with Jeroboam. So that the word of God is confirmed that as people passed by this road, this major road going to Bethel, they got to see this uh, this uh, testimony there. This weird thing it was kind of like Samson uh, with the honeycomb and the lion. Now, these weird things that God does sometimes to draw the attention of the world to the fact that he has spoken. And so as the people passed by, they saw this dead man. They dared not touch the dead man, though, because there was a lion there that looked very menacing and a donkey who was not behaving like a normal donkey and running from a lion. These three stood there as sentinels guarding the declaration that God's word stands above all other things. And uh, we see this in verse um, 26 where uh, the prophet says therefore the Lord has delivered him to the lion which has torn him and killed him according to the word of the Lord which he spoke to him and he spoke to his son the older prophet to his son saying saddle the donkey for me so they saddled it now it doesn't it doesn't explain here immediately that the older prophet is in the midst of repentance but that's what you see happening he goes and he finds the man he, he loads him on his donkey despite the presence of the lion he takes the prey of the lion, and puts him on his donkey. And then when he gets home, he buries him, and he tells his sons. What he's saying here is, I am unworthy to be buried with this man, but I pray that you'll bury me with this man, because he is more worthy than I. And he calls attention to the fact that, that he had prevaricated, that he had lied, that he had dissembled before this young man, and he was used by God as an instrument for bringing the young man down. But ultimately, all of this was for God's blessing, for blessing God's people, for building up the word of God and the estimation and the reputation of the word of God. God uses these things. And, and so it was with, um, uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the last point of the sermon is comparison to Rome's errors in Jesus' temptation. Uh, our Lord Jesus was, uh, was clothed with the sins of the world. That's even a more protracted and hard-to-understand concept than this, this younger man of God being discouraged and confused by the older prophet. Uh, but our Lord Jesus, though he was identified with sin and though he had to be, uh, though he had to pay the penalty for sin, our Lord Jesus, unlike the younger prophet, never got confused. Where the younger prophet and where often human prophets err and make mistakes and get confused and wander off the way for a season like Solomon, our Lord Jesus Christ never did that. That's part of the power of his righteousness. That's why he can save us from our sin. He, uh, he was undaunted in his ability to know what the word of God is and to follow that word of God. And he followed that word of God to his own destruction. And yet that destruction turned out to be the greatest uh, instrument of salvation that the, that the world, that mankind has ever ever seen. I, when I think of this sort of story, I couldn't help thinking of Rome and how Rome compares to the younger prophet. Uh, Rome, who at one time, uh, at least the Roman church at one time, 
was orthodox. It was the father or the mother of all the, the, the basic creeds of the faith. It was Trinitarian in a godly way. And it's Trinitarianism spoke and declared the Calvinism that we hold so dear today. The Father had ordained salvation. The Son had gone and earned that salvation. And then the Holy Spirit had applied that salvation to us. So that the Trinitarianism of the early church was, re was reborn in the Calvinism of the Reformed Church, ultimately. It's a wonderful paradigm, a wonderful similarity between the two. But Rome, who held, Rome who understood the gospel at one time, I'm speaking loosely here of Rome because it wasn't just Rome, it was the other uh, cities of the church of, that, of the Mediterranean area. At one time, she was orthodox. She believed the gospel. She disputed with heretics. But what happened to her about 1000 AD and then following after that, she became more and more decrepit. It was like the younger prophet who gave up the prophecies of his youth. He, he at one time, his ears were turned to the tune, to the Lord, so that he was willing. All the apostles died as martyrs. And there were many others of that first millennium that died based upon the truth of the Lord. But then like this younger prophet, there was another prophet that began to prophesy, and they were they were um, seduced by a word that was not really the word of the Lord. And uh, I think so often we talk from hindsight on the errors of Rome, but we forget how wonderful she was for so long. How she was the true Christian church for so long. And then she was seduced by that word that was not the word. So we, in our day, we are challenged to respect the written word of God. We're going to see in in the Sunday school or the, the church history class that we have today, we're going to see how the, the abiding power and principle of Puritanism was simply its respect of the word of God. Yet in my own day, my own life, I came to see where uh, at Westminster Seminary East, which was really the, the guiding light of the, all the American seminaries, it was one of the best that came from Machen and the earlier generation of teachers there, where the, 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 one of the cardinal sins, as they talked about it in the classrooms of Westminster East, was what they called Biblicism. If you were a Biblicist, then you were... Somehow you didn't, you weren't sophisticated enough to see the ways that the seminary thought that everyone should go. And I'm sure that there were some faults that were identified with this, with this problem. But uh, I would not, in my wildest dreams, uh, associate any evil with the Bible. I would not call somebody a biblicist. If I did not agree with what they were saying, I would I would argue that they weren't being biblical. But in our day, this is the wisdom of the of the greater places of our day to challenge those that are quote too biblical. Uh, learn to discriminate between your terminology. Celebrate the word of God. Decry the word of man. We are for God, we are anti-humanism in terms of ultimate things, in terms of Bibles, in terms of the word that should control our lives. And so it was, this, this story is an amazing story in the Bible. 
it's, it strikes you as very odd when you first read it, but it has so many dimensions, so many applications to it. And I've said, I've told you just recently that I pointed to the story when, <clears throat> when uh, George Whitfield came to America to preach, he passed Wesley's ship in the harbor there. I forget whether it was Plymouth Harbor in, uh, in the UK uh, or one of the others. But uh, Wesley had just come back from America. Wesley had a lot of problems in his life at this time, and uh, he was not fully revived himself in many ways. So he told Woodfield, he said, you should not go to America. I've been there. Nothing happened. People didn't want to hear the word of God. Whitfield, Whitfield replied to Wesley using this story, using this very story. And he said, I feel called to go. I'm sorry. I'm going to go. <laughs> and at his coming to America, he began to preach powerfully, much more powerfully than Wesley had preached, much more under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And the revival broke out in America, the American colonies. And uh, I had teachers that told me that that uh, there were fruits of this revival that led to the formation of America about 50 years later, 1776, and thereabouts. That, uh, that uh, America had been at a place where they, they, they were losing their Puritanism in the, in the early 1700s. The 1600s Puritanism was dying. Whitfield had rekindled that, and it was out of that second chapter of Puritanism that, West, that Whitfield preached that came so many men like John Witherspoon, Presbyterian, signer of the Declaration, signer of the, the Declaration of Independence, and others. There were many. There were many deists at that time, Benjamin Franklin, Je Thomas Jefferson. But there were also many godly men that had been revived by this revival that was led by Whitfield, who would not desist from what he felt God was calling him to do, namely come to America to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Our Father and our God, we pray that thou would strengthen us in our day. That we might be able to discriminate between the word of God and the word of men. Bless us, O God, with thy inspiration, thy true inspiration. Wherein we hear the word of God that seizes upon Christ and his kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.